Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of As It Should Be. Thank you all so much. These last few weeks that I've been away from the show and taking a mental break, space for the new year, space for the holidays has been amazing. Um, And I've been able to watch and see that you all are still really excited about the show. You've been really engaging with um, our last episode. And so... Before we jump in and start making new episodes for the new year and and, you know, learning all of the all of the new things that people are doing to help recreate the world as it should be, I thought it would be fun to spend a few new a few of the next episodes just reflecting on the conversations that we've had in the past with our guests um, with our past guests so without further ado I want to introduce the first replay that we've ever done um, and we're going to replay the very first episode of as it should be it's been a year, a little over a year since the podcast has launched. So this pot, this episode is about one year old. It's uh, we recorded it in November 2020, I believe. Um, so any references that you hear, <laughs> please remember that this is pre-recorded over a year ago. Um And yeah, I would love to hear your feedback on uh, the old episode and and anything new that you hear um, while you're listening to it again or for the first time. I know a lot of we have a lot of new listeners over the last few months. So if this is your first time hearing our decolonized education conversation with Susie Berg please let me know. Um, Thank you all so much who have left reviews and comments um, in Apple. And for those of you who are listening in Spotify, you can now rate the show in Spotify. So that is pretty cool. So please, I would really appreciate you heading over, rating the show in Spotify. Um, And thank you so much for all of your support. teacher means something completely different to a person who is separated from their home, separated from their language, tried to have all traces of their indigeneity removed from them. A school is a very frightening place. This is the As It Should Be podcast, and I'm your host, Tamara Jones. Join me as I speak to the people remaking the world as it should be. We discuss the role of inclusion, equity, and belonging in facing the challenges shaping our society today. Okay, so the interview that you're about to hear is with my good friend, Susie Berg. She's a writer, and I would also call her a change agent and a co-conspirator for racial justice or justice just for everybody. She works at Pearson, which is an organization committed to helping change lives through learning. It's the largest 
education company in the world. She works as a senior digital solution strategist and a global diversity and inclusion advocate. If I had to tell you anything about Susie, it's that she's made it her business to create a culture of curiosity and questioning from the inside out of this company and just everywhere that she goes. She uses the system for good and she uses it for change to build one where belonging is at the center of how we learn. If I say you're going to learn anything from this interview, it's going to be how to push your industry towards more inclusivity. You're going to love this conversation with Susie. Welcome to As It Should Be, Susie. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you for writing a perfect intro that I am now going to use on my LinkedIn page. You're welcome. I I really love reading your LinkedIn page as it is right now. That's where I got some of this stuff. Yeah, and yeah. then you you kind of upped the game. So I <laughs> very, very awesome. So speaking of your intro, I feel like it was a lot for people. Can you describe in your own words what it is that you do and what about your work you believe is helping to remake the world as it should be? So I think of my work as a digital solution strategist as helping our subject area teams think about digital first instead of print first. And That involves a lot of challenging assumptions. It involves a lot of change management. It deals with uncertainty and, but we always did it this way. Can't we just do this for digital the way we used to do for print? And there's a lot of listening and trying to get at what makes them want to do something the way we always have done, even though things are changing. So I really try to ask those questions and I try to listen to what is getting in their way of change. And so you asked me, what about my work do I think is helping to remake the world as it should be? So super interesting question because I think the world as it should be, should be a place where education is actually equitable. And I don't think that's happening right now. And so working for a learning company, I feel very responsible to look at not just the materials we produce, but who produces them, who who are our writers, who are our reviewers, who are the people that share our work in the world. And how do we produce them? Is even the system that we use to produce them creating inequity? Maybe it's not, but not questioning it won't help us break that down and figure out what's a better way we could do this? What's a different way we could do this? I think that teaching people these new processes encourages them to challenge everything they do. When they see that they can work differently as a team, I think it makes them think, oh, well, what if I looked at this? Or what if I looked at that and gives them the knowledge and the empowerment to know they can look at things and they can raise challenges and they can start to say, is there someone's voice that isn't here? Is there a way we could look at this, anything, this material, this process, this customer in a different way? Yeah. So you talked a lot about the 
the learning materials that you're making. So are you making, um, and I feel like people can hear it in your, in your voice, but you're, you're in Canada. So are you making, um, are you making material for the K-12? So like young, young learners, or is it for higher education? Um, and also, is it just for Canadian schools or is it um, across different countries? So it is K-12 and it's only for Canada. Every country would be so different in in its sensibility and how it approaches subjects that it's it's really only the the general concepts that are transferable. So uh, it is just for the Canadian market. Absolutely. That, that makes total sense. So I would love to kind of know how you got here. Can you talk a little bit about your life journey in the sense of how did it shape your path to education and writing and the work that you're doing now? I started out in, um, I started, (laughs) I started out as a literary agent. I was a very bad literary agent. Um, but I worked with a woman, I was an associate to a woman who was in charge of all the children's authors. And I was like, is there a job where I can read kids books all day long and then teach teachers how to use kids books in in their classrooms. I did not know that an entire industry created already existed of of that. That's just what spoke to me is the idea of literature in classrooms and using it to teach. Once I got into educational publishing, I went a lot beyond literature. So I did start out in language arts and then went on to math and science and basically whatever came my way because it made a difference to me. So that's the piece of why I why I'm in educational publishing and why I stay in educational publishing, or I should probably say why I stay in the learning field. At the same time, the the lens of how we make the world a better place um, comes from being the parent of a trans child. And when he came out to us, I was really struck by not knowing what I didn't know and understanding that there were barriers that society would put in place for him or that we would put in place for him unintentionally that might not be necessary, that you could look at things as they were and say, is somebody not seeing themselves here? Is somebody not only not seeing themselves, but actively pushed out? So for example, I I would say for a trans person or a non-binary person, you might really feel actively pushed away if there was a line for a boy, line for boys and line for girls. And your brain is saying, well, where do I go? Um, And and that's really pushing out as opposed to not including. Um, And so I started looking at everything from a point of view of, is there somebody's story who isn't being heard? Is there something we're not looking at? If I'm stuck in something, I'm having trouble solving this problem. Am I looking at it the same way I've always looked at it? Is there another lens to look at it? And what am I afraid of? Because often I'd be like, well, I'm stuck. So I'll just keep pounding away at it as opposed to, well, I'm stuck. Is there another way I could look at this? Why am I afraid to look at this this other way? Is there something I would lose if I looked at it this way? What would happen if I lost that? Is that the most terrible thing in the world? Usually it's not the most terrible thing in the world. Usually the fear comes from what you don't know. And so as I started looking at the world through the lens of a person who may feel excluded all the time, 
I expanded that view to include everything, to include skin color, to include religion, to include... I started a lot of this work with the summer camp where I'm on the board. And I thought about the kids who come from single parent families. I thought about kids for whom that means a divorce or kids for whom that might mean the death of a parent because it's a Jewish camp. I thought about interfaith families because kids are kids and they are hilarious. I know that a kid who can't eat dairy probably feels completely left out when there's ice cream, right? And a kid at like 11 years old doesn't see the difference between being left out because of that and being left out because they're non-binary, right? Like it's just for a kid, that's just being left out. And so it really widened my lens to see all sorts of equity and then also, you know, socioeconomic and just what the structures are that go back and back and back in history that push people out of the way and have been incredibly successful at pushing people out of the way. So that the centering of the people with the most power who are white Europeans in general in Western society just is the norm. And because we've always done that is not a good answer to anything. And when it, when it comes to education, that's really not a good answer to anything because we also know because we've always done that was sometimes done purposely to push people away. And it's been exceptionally successful, which means we can be exceptionally successful at undoing it if we try. The way that you think about things is very different than a lot of people who will sometimes when uh, things happen to you in life or or when you're forced to kind of reckon with your own blinders. It's very easy to not allow that moment to cascade into larger pieces of your life or even not even larger, but just different pieces of your life. You can you can have a son who comes out to you and not allow that to make you think, huh, where else am I allowing my blinders to kind of stop me from seeing what else I'm missing? Not a lot of people will kind of take it that way and address it that way and allow it to cascade through the rest of their lives in and even so much as when you're work, when you're doing your work with the camp you're thinking about the way that the different children are able to not delineate between being left out for one reason versus being left out for another and there's so much in our culture that's shaping what you do so I'm wondering more recently because you talked about um your your how your work was influenced with your son and how your work was influenced by how how long ago was it that you were volunteering at the camp that you work at when when do you do that um, do you i do started that? in 2013 mm-hmm. and still going so even with that work um and and with your work at pearson there's so much going on in the world right i feel like this is a good transition into like all of all of the other things that are shaping our society right now politically there is volatility in the air for racial justice there people are as loud as they ever have been about there there being a need for racial justice and climate change is still on the agenda questions like who you can love and whether or not you're allowed to show up as your true self are still questions um so i'm wondering for you when you're approaching your work at Pearson specifically, how are the, how are the factors that are shaping our culture kind of changing or guiding the, the material that your team is creating? 
sometimes that gets overwhelming. We look at all those things going on. And sometimes I think of that as a bit of a gift because we can open our arms so wide and start to reflect for our learners. At Pearson Canada, we've started a process of what the person who's leading the work calls decolonizing our resources, which is, a, it's such a wonderful term. She didn't invent it. She just, uh, it was wonderful to have her sort of put that lens on it. Um, in Canada in particular, our sensitivities are a lot towards Indigenous people. And because we are a colony, because we're still part of the Commonwealth. So we're super aware, I think, of what colonization means. And so I really like decolonizing because it's very much about moving the settler out of the center and moving the original inhabitants of the land into the center at the same time, considering what it means to be a settler. So that's not necessarily just about moving the indigenous people off the land, but what is that mindset that says we who have white power get to be centered? Um, And so what we're looking at is what do our resources look like and who do they center? And who do they center in their content? So sometimes that's, that's, um, I don't want to call it simple, straightforward. Uh, if you're looking at a set of um, uh, reading books for a, a younger audience, you know, kindergarten, grade one, grade two, where of course it's just, there aren't that many words uh, versus how do you look at the ways that indigenous people might approach mathematics? So did you create your math book in a way that says, here's the curriculum, your activities go to match the curriculum, and you're going to use examples that make you appear to be thinking about, oh, some people live rural, some people live urban. Let's put in an indigenous name. Let's um, bring a piece of black culture in. That isn't the same as how you approach the teaching of mathematics, for example, from the point of view of a culture in Canada where the residential school system is how indigenous people as a whole, I mean, I'm I'm making a, a big blanket statement, but how indigenous people as a whole see education. So one thing we know is that in, um, in our indigenous, uh, in various indigenous communities and in um, band councils and band schools, the residential school system is still so recent that grandparents and sometimes parents do not want to come into school for what we would call parents' night, which we think of as completely normal. Let's come in and meet the teachers. Well, a teacher means something completely different to a person who is separated from their home, separated from their language tried to have all traces of their indigeneity removed from them, a school is a very frightening place. And so there's these amazing groups doing work with indigenous schools where they start to understand, okay, you don't have parents night. You spend a cycle of approximately three to five years understanding how the communities, how the community views school and understanding how they can help you change their view and how you can help them change their view. And then you can invite them into your school. But doing things quickly and doing things from a European 
okay, we come in and this is the way we do it. And this is, that is, that's an entire system that doesn't work. When you look at socioeconomic issues, which could have to do with um, an imbalance of power between black people and white people, or it could have to do with immigration, um, which is not all from countries where people are of color, um, could have to do with when you immigrate to Canada very often, um, if you certainly if you move into a, uh, an urban area, you may find you live in a place of higher density, harder to find jobs if English isn't your first language. All of these things play into what we expect our materials do when they go into the home. And it's not just, OK, here's your book. Take it home and someone will read it to you. Do I know if someone in that home speaks English? I know we're not all in school right now, but do I know if someone in the home speaks English? Do I know if a parent has three jobs? Do I know if this child is responsible for looking after a younger sibling or making dinner? Um, and that's not just about that's socioeconomic. Those that goes across race. That's that's much more about thinking about people who live in in poverty um, and children who live in poverty. Or people who don't even live in poverty, but require three jobs in order to make a living wage, right? So all of these systems connect to one another. And so the idea now that, that we are hoping to do is to take a look at our materials and look at what kind of content do they have? Um, in K-12, we've been lucky. We have always, always, always considered who's showing up in these books. So there is ethnic diversity, there's diversity of ability, there's diversity uh, in rural and urban, there's diversity of um, gender and role models. Um, by role models, I mean, who's doing the roles, you know, they're men cooking and then are there women firefighters? And yes, that's in K-12, that's always been an issue, always been a, it's not an issue, always been something we'd look at. And I've been doing this for 30 years, so it is not new from that point of view. Um, what is new, I think, is where have we, where have we missed who we are centering? So everyone is quite represented, I think, uh, both visually and in the, in the content, in the stories we tell it in how things are framed, but what's not represented is, is the how of how we get there. The assumption that you walk in a classroom and everybody's going to understand. Here's one we have, they have a book on jelly beans. Well, we have a lot of immigrant kids and they don't know what jelly beans are. That is not a piece of their background. What we forget is who is the expert in who these kids are. The kids are the experts in who they are. And your classroom experience can be much, much richer if you're considering what do you, what do you know about you? Let's start with what you know about you. You teach me about you and then I can use the materials to teach you about math or history or social studies or whatever it is. Um, because otherwise you're making a bunch of assumptions um, before you get to, to any of the learning and you may create problems. There may be barriers to that learning simply because that you made an assumption as a teacher and that kid already lost you. It was so interesting when you were talking about how you guys are looking at how, when it comes to race and and math, even <laughs> how white power is at the center of the way that we teach 
that reminded me of a conversation that my husband and I had because we were talking about, you know, potentially having kids in our future and the way that we were taught in schools about history. Um, and since we're, we're American and we grew up in us school systems, we both grew up in public school and we always saw the way that I kind of explain it is that like they taught history without context. Mm-hmm. We're hearing about slavery as if slavery is the only thing happening in the world, in the mm-hmm. country. And then, and then you don't hear about anything between, between the uh, transcontinental trade <laughs> system and Harriet Tubman. Right. There's, there's no like, nothing between, happened. Yep. No, like nothing happened. And then, and then between Harriet Tubman and the civil rights movement, nothing happened. Nothing at all. No. It was just so interesting to me, the way that you were talking about how you're rethinking learning and teaching in the way of the context is who is at the center of what we're teaching. And then how are we able to change the centering so that it's more applicable to a larger group of who our learners are. Yeah. I always think about this thing where working in education, we get older, but the kids stay the same age because they're always in grade two or they're always, sorry, second grade, or they're always freshmen in college, whatever it is, they're always the same age. And I think that's also true when we look at the, at race and ethnicity is that mixed skin that's and and different ethnic backgrounds that's what the world will look like that's what the world should look like right and that's what will happen so those of us who are white will just get older and our families will begin to meet and engage in a much different way across races and then we'll start to see that melding which is really the way the world should be anyway, right? It's more accurate. Yeah. And it reminded whenever people talk about how the how the world is changing into more mixed race families, it reminds me of because again, I'm American, right? So I grew up in American public schools where they had us on stage singing about the great American melting pot, um, which is the concept of America is this place that is amazing because we are all we are all different and we all look different. We all sound different. We all behave differently. And that is what makes us amazing. And we're on stage. We're like we're like 10 years old, maybe smaller than that. And we're singing about this. And we're all like holding hands. And I went to a charter school. So I went to, I've gone to predominantly white schools my whole life as a black woman that that's another conversation for another day. (laughs) I'm here for it. (laughs) But I, but like now when I grow, now that I'm older and I'm like at a point where I'm thinking about having kids of my own, that concept, the fact that I haven't heard about that concept in at least a decade for me, like, like I haven't heard about the concept of the great American melting pot in 10 years. And it's so prevalent to me right now that it's something missing. And it's a, it's something that we held up so high as kids that I feel like we don't as much now. 
which is disheartening. But I want and I want our kids to be able to think that way as well. Like I want them to understand that our differences are what make us amazing. The benefits of difference as opposed to I think there's also the ignoring of difference. I don't see color. It's like, well, then you can't have any empathy for someone else because you presume that everything works for other people the way it works for you. And that's true of any, anything, um, color, height, it doesn't really matter. If you assume your experience is the only experience, if you don't understand the benefit of understanding different experiences, you're, that's not helping. <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's not the goal. Ignoring that we are different is not the goal. I've seen where even as a black woman, if I ignore my differences between the people that I have to serve in the work that I do in my own experience, then there are a lot of people who aren't going to be able to experience whatever it is to its fullest capacity for them, to its fullest benefit for them. That's the gift you bring to them and they're not getting it. Yeah. When it comes to access and support, have you seen race or I think gender identity is something that we don't talk enough about um, as it relates to access and support? Do you feel like have you seen that impact the the children that that are learning the materials? Um, You know, that's interesting. I don't because I'm I work in development. I'm not customer facing in the way that I am in the classrooms and see the customers. So it's harder to tell. What about in the, the camps that you work yeah, in? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. In that <laughs> situation, uh, one of the first things we noticed, we did a gender audit, we, a gendered spaces audit. We walked through camp and we went to every space on camp and either asked the staff members who worked there or kind of looked at, is something here? Is there something that becomes gendered that doesn't need to. And one of the interesting ones was the infirmary where they did in fact have two lineups for boys and girls. And we asked the nurses, this is her like daily medication. We asked the nurses, we said, so we noticed you have a lineup for boys and a lineup for girls. Why is that? And we didn't even have to say anything. They went, because there's two nurses. So we needed to divide them in two, but that doesn't make any sense. There are other ways we could divide them in two. Why didn't we do it by their last names? Why didn't we do it by their birth dates? And it was hilarious because the second we asked them the question, they noticed the difference. But because no one had ever asked the question, it was like, whatever, there's two of us. We need to divide them in two so everybody can get their meds. End of story, right? So that access, if you were, um, if you were a, first of all, if you were a non-binary kid and actually sensed that, I think it's even harder if you're a non-binary kid. If you're a trans kid who, who really knows this body is not working for me and has the language for that, which I don't think my kid did initially because the year before he came out as a trans boy, he told us he was gay. Actually, that's not true. He said, you do know I'm not straight, don't you? Which was a very complicated question. (laughs) Oh, let me just parse that for a minute. Um, He didn't have the language at the time. So I think of a kid who doesn't have the language 
going to get their morning medicine and seeing a line that says boys and girls and basically just feeling there's no place for me here because nothing matches. Now I think about that same kid uh, bunks one to 10 and bunks 10 to 20 and they know what number bunk they're in and they walk in and they know what line to go in. End of story. So that access completely changes. And, and if they'd never been before, they don't know it's changed from boys and girls to numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So if they've never been before, they just walk in and that access is there. That's it. So I think that the more that we can think about what might be a barrier to someone else, not a barrier to us. And if I'm a 50-year-old person writing a book for a seven-year-old, I, I, don't, I can't think like a a 50 year old, I have to think like a seven year old, what's the barrier that I'm putting up. So I think the more that we can consider those barriers, you bring them down and that allows for the access. The other thing that's happening in Canada is maybe elsewhere. I just don't know is called culturally responsive and culturally relevant pedagogy. So that's what I was talking about before where you ask the kids what they are experts in. And you work from that expertise and your examples are around that. And that's about removing the barriers. So one of the things we're doing first is doing a research project across the country, asking the various, um, here we call them ministries of education, what their plans are for culturally relevant and culturally responsive pedagogy so that we are not making up what we think the materials should be, but so they're aligned with what the ministries are already doing. Who are their learners? Who lives in their province? Do they have a high number of immigrants? Do they have a high number of indigenous people? Uh, do they have a high number of second language learners? Uh, English is a second language learner. And that way, you know what you're responding to and you're able to create your materials or revise your materials so that they match what's good for the province. So you're, you're modeling that same thing. You were talking to the learner and saying, what do you need? How can we provide that? So it matches instead of saying here, this is good for you. So how has the work that you're doing impacted your own sense of belonging or your definition of belonging? I'm so focused on the learners that I serve or on the camp community that I serve, which isn't always just the campers. That can be our teen staff. That can be our faculty. That can be our community members. Um, I think about the camp community as a whole. Oh my gosh. I never think about this for me. Okay. Just a minute. Um, so certainly I, I'm really aware of barriers now. Um, and so I'm, I'm aware of them all the time. I'm interestingly more aware of the things I do as a woman that I didn't know everybody didn't do, like being afraid to walk alone at night. I just, that's, it's night, it's dark, you're alone, I'm afraid. Like, I just, I thought that was normal. And when I say it to guys, I'm like, you're going to go by yourself, you're going to walk home by yourself. And they just look at me like, why not? I'm like, men aren't afraid of this. Did not know. I totally feel that. Oh my gosh. Didn't know. Didn't know. And I said 50, but I'm actually 54. That's a long time to go without knowing that. Um, So I think, so for my definition of belonging, it's really about that open arms, that expertise in yourself, uh, that removing barriers. 
Um, but for my experience of belonging, it's um, awareness of how I move through the world as a woman. It's an awareness of how I move through the world as a white person and where I'm centering myself and where I'm not. I talk a lot and I'm really trying to listen in particular when there are women of color in the room with me or people of color in the, in the space with me. I want to hear stories that I'm not hearing. I want to be a, I want to be an ally. I can't say if I'm a better ally because I don't get to call myself an ally. I want to be an ally and I, I want, because I'm good at challenging assumptions, I want to challenge my own assumptions. That doesn't scare me. I don't think I have anything to lose by learning from someone else. I don't think there's power I have that I'm going to give up. I do recognize there's power I have as a white person that I very much want to know how to share with someone else. And that's a place where I, um, where I waver because I have the, if I ask this black friend how I can give her more power, am I asking her to do the work? So that's a, that's a tension for me, not knowing when it's okay to do that. And when it's not, um, yeah, that's that. I love that. How's that for belonging? So you talked a little bit about allyship. So in your work, you, um, in the beginning, when you're describing your role, you talked a lot about how you're trying to get people to challenge their own assumptions and you, and you want them to kind of think about why we're doing the things that we're doing. So I think that that kind of fits the bill for a change agent, as we described in your intro. So as a change agent, can you describe how, how allyship plays into your ability to break through to the people that you're working with? Oh, um, this is another place of tension for me because I have been a formal DEI advocate at Pearson for two years. And when I met my co-advocates at Pearson, every time I meet someone who's an advocate, I'm like, oh, I'm not the only person who thinks this way. And it's, it's such a relief because the work of being an advocate and the work of allyship can be very lonely. It's not lonely with the people who you are desperately trying to use your white voice. If that's, if that's how you happen to be appearing as an ally or your straight voice, it's not lonely with, with those people. Uh, It's lonely with the people who don't want to listen because you're constantly pushing against the norm and you're, you're raising discomfort. People do not like discomfort. You're pointing out uncertainty. People don't like uncertainty. And if you're me, you have this fierce belief that what you are doing is right. And you feel like you are on the right side of justice and the right side of history. And you can't understand why other people don't see that. And so sometimes that becomes very frustrating. And in my frustration, I do sometimes, I lose my, I lose the ability to communicate the way that I want to. And then that upsets me because it goes back to, I'm not allowed to be angry because that's not, you know, you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And I just, yeah, but why? Um, (laughs) And then I always think about Justice Ginsburg, who said, you know, the goal is to, to lead so that people want to follow you. And so since that quote's been thrown around a lot since she died, I've, I keep saying to myself, if Justice Ginsburg could do this, (laughs) then this is a model for me to follow, which is 
it's okay to lead in a way that encourages people to follow. What I forget is I forget to look back on what has happened in my five years of advocacy work with camp or my two to three years of advocacy work at work. And when I look at that, I see changes. Um, I see a, an office when we used to go to the office where the pride flag was raised for the first time two years ago and flew for the whole month of June uh, and was done again last year. And even this year, when we weren't in there, our managing director and one of the other advocates went to the office. We were still allowed to be outside at that point and, and raised the flag. So it was still up there. Um, I see a space where people use their pronouns. I see a space where my black colleagues and other colleagues of color who would not speak out, understandably, I understand the, the uh, risks for them have started to talk and have started to be seen as leaders. And I am so, I'm so proud of them. And I'm so relieved that there is a space for them to speak. I see an entire truth and reconciliation circle they have at our company. They started that because they knew it was a space where they could be brave enough to bring this forward. I've seen microaggressions training. I've seen mandatory training on race and ethnicity for our managers. This is stuff we have wanted, wanted, wanted to have in place. And if it's not moving fast enough for me, or if I don't have everyone on my side, I have to remember, but look how far we've come. And I know look how far we've come frustrates me because I shouldn't be looking at the civil rights movement and going, why have we not come farther? I shouldn't be watching the Hulu biopic kind of thing, Mrs. America, and think women have not come one step further. Um, I should look at, I have to look at both how far we have come. And yes, there is still work to do. Um, and at camp, I know my allyship has made a massive difference. Uh, we have kids who are comfortable coming out as LGBTQ. Um, we started an, an initiative on racial justice this year, um, taken on by our alumni members who have traditionally not been engaged as much as we would like after camp. And they have jumped into this after May 25th. We want to do this. We want to make statements that we are anti-racist. We want to make statements that we want to learn. And that's because the allyship created by starting this work made the space brave and protective for people to want to step up and, and really do this work. And our camp just won an award for it, um, for starting that conversation. Um, and I am, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. And even though I knew I watched the video after we won the award and I'm like, wait, we did this. So I do think there's a bit of a space where we forget that every small step really makes a difference. It makes a difference to somebody, somebody somewhere felt that impact. And it's so important. That's how I want our learners to feel too. Like they saw themselves. They said, I am an expert in me. And the teacher said, you know, in whatever me is. And the teacher said, oh, that's interesting. Let's use that as an example in our whatever. And, and they see their value. I love stories like that because it's, it's 
a literal representation of what it means to remake the world Ooh, as it should yes. be. Yes. I love stories like that. Ah, remake the world as it should be. And that it takes these small steps and these small steps are okay. Yeah. Oh, thank you for saying that. Remake the world as it should be. Yes. So if you made the most impact you could on the world, how would the world look as a result? Oh, the students would all come first. Teachers would walk into their classrooms or whatever they're doing now with their classrooms. Teachers would address their classrooms with, tell me what you're an expert in and tell me what it means to be an expert in you. Okay, I'm going to take all of this information you just gave me and that's how we're going to run our class this year. That's what it would look like because from there, everything that would waterfall down from there, these, oh, our future would be a future of people who feel valued for who they are and what they bring to the world. And then they would want to keep doing that over and over again. And then it would just multiply out. We're all experiencing challenges when it comes to making that level of impact that we want to make. So what what would you say is your biggest hurdle or your biggest frustration that you face when it comes to making the level of impact that you'd like to make? Biggest? You can choose top I want three. a whole bunch. Okay. You can choose top uh, three. <laughs> People are terrified of change. And the reason they're terrified of change is because everything is tied to money and they do not believe that it's okay to let go of this obsession with power and money. I would love for people to be happy with enough so that everybody had enough and that nobody had to have this incredible imbalance of money and power. That's a big picture version of it. And the small picture version is, is the constant pushback against wanting to make change because we have to, because other things are more important. Um, and I think everything is tied together. And I think it's hard for people to see that. Okay. I have absolutely loved this conversation. If people want to connect with you, or if they want to learn about your, organiza your organization, Pearson, or the camp that you serve at, how can they get in touch? Folks can reach me at bergdiversityconsultants at gmail.com, or they can check out my writing website at susieberg.ca. Okay, awesome. I will be sure to write all of that. So it's in the description and the show notes. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today, Susie. Uh, Tamara, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having this idea. And thank you for asking these questions. They made me think. And they brought me so much joy to answer. Oh. And I have a feeling that that's part of the bigger answer to this. Is finding joy in making these changes. And knowing that enough people want to make the world as it should be. There you have it. The first episode of the As It Should Be with Tamara Jones podcast. I would love to know what you think. Email me. My email is hello at tamarajones.com or find me on social Tamara Jones on Instagram and LinkedIn. I would love to see your thoughts. 
And I'd love to know who else you'd like to see on the podcast or some topics that you want us to talk about. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode and see you on the next one. Peace.